Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SayTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SayTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play, visit SayTheDamnScore.com today. A Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 56 of the Say the Damn Score podcast, which is, of course, dedicated to the sportscasting industry, sharing sportscasting stories, and providing information to help improve as sportscasters. As the big-voiced guy just said, I'm Logan Anderson, a high school and small college play-by-play broadcaster in South Dakota, And this week, we are joined by special guest Brad Sham, the voice of the Dallas Cowboys. Brad, how's it going today? Going very well, Logan. Thanks very much. And we will jump right into it. One of the icebreakers I like to use in this podcast is just, at what point in your life did you get the radio bug where you knew this is what you wanted to do? Well, I I knew when I was um, probably about... uh, somewhere between 12 and 14 years old that uh, I originally wanted to be a uh, baseball announcer because um, I'm a Chicago native and uh, I, I had I had this sudden realization that the guys that I was watching do baseball games on television every day were actually at the ball game and it didn't have anything to do with anything except going to the ball game every day and uh, I later figured out that you could practice journalism while doing sports. That's why I went to Missouri. And um, somewhere along the line, uh, I figured out that uh, both reporting and doing games were something that uh, really appealed to me. And you got your start on the air in school, actually, before college. How did that help you to advanced to a point where you were able to go to the University of Missouri, one of the most prestigious journalism schools in the country? There's nothing like practical experience. Um, I was just fortunate to go to a high school in suburban Chicago, New Trier, that that had its own little FM educational band. And so while I was in high school, I started broadcasting did a scoreboard football show my sophomore year and my senior year i had a chance to do play-by-play of basketball and baseball and uh, that that kind of helped me uh, understand uh, how much i liked it and at missouri i got involved with various uh, campus and commercial stations and and part of the journalism program is uh, at least at the time, it was uh, when you were uh, in your sequence as a senior, then you got to do some practical uh, experience. And so I did some work on uh, the on the commercial radio and television stations in town in my senior year. Well, those things are all the, the book learning's good. It's important. I believe in it. And there's nothing like practical experience. I want an internship at a radio station in Washington, D.C. the summer after my junior year in college, and I probably learned more about how the business worked in those three months or two and a half months uh, than I did in uh, in all of the formal schooling that I had. Nothing beats practical experience. Are there any existing tapes anywhere of those high school broadcasts that you did way back Not in the day? Have any of them survived? I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that we even kept them. <laughs> 
So before we get into your professional broadcasting career, doing a little bit of research on you beforehand, you did not go out of college directly to work. You went into the National Guard. What, into, what went into that decision? I was in the uh, first year of the Vietnam lottery, and uh, I had a draft lottery number that would have sent me right to combat in Vietnam. I wasn't interested in that. So I was able to get into a National Guard unit in Kansas City, Kansas, and uh, um, went through, uh, excuse me, went through infantry training, but because I got into a guard unit, I didn't go into combat. I I, uh, did my years uh, in the National Guard, and when I moved to uh, Dallas, I was able to get into a unit in Terrell, Texas for a while until my uh, time was up and I got my discharge. What was the most helpful thing that you're able to apply to your broadcasting career from your military career? You know, you learn discipline, that's for sure. Uh, you learn a sense of uh, everything not being about you, because when you're, especially when you're preparing for combat, you understand whether you agree or not, which you almost never do, with the um, the things that you're being taught as you're being taught them, um, you understand that the success of the operation, and in the military case, sometimes uh, life or death depends on you and the guy on either side of you doing selflessly what you have been trained to do. So the, I think those are great life lessons that serve you in in anything. It's one of the reasons I think that I really uh, love football so much. It's, I think, and I love all the other sports, but I think that football is more, the success in football is more dependent on the very same things that you learn in military training, uh, accountability, responsibility, and the necessity for everyone pulling together and not thinking about themselves. So eventually you got the opportunity to get into the to get into the market in the Dallas area. You started the very first call-in talk show, I believe, in Dallas history. I did. Yeah, I did. Take us through how you got the break to get that opportunity and then how you were able to take off and run with it. Well, it was a very long time ago, so the 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 whole industry was different. Um as a, as a kid in the Chicago area, I had heard uh, call-in shows that was done on uh, WBBM by a guy named uh, um, Weaver. I think it was uh, Steve Weaver. I don't remember for sure. I knew a guy named Steve Weaver later. It might not have been Steve. But um, he he had a call-in show. I called in one time, talked to Ernie Banks. That was the coolest thing ever. And um, the first job that I got after a few months – uh, after I got out of active duty, uh, was with a station that doesn't exist in Dallas anymore, but it was municipally owned and uh, didn't pay very much. And the program director was looking for a news reporter, and uh, he was impressed with a journalism degree from Missouri and the fact that I would work for $600 a month. And at that time, I could actually have an apartment and a car and uh, feed myself on $600 a month. So that's how I got that job. That's how I started. And it was as a news reporter, and I told them I want to be in sports. And they said, well, we haven't got anything right now, but we'll see. And I just kept, I was in my early 20s, and I kept badgering them, making sure that I did my job first, and incrementally, slowly, because I was aggressive and pushy, um, they they let me do some sports-related things. And the first thing was a five-minute sportscast and an hour noon news block that we did. And a little bit more and a little bit more. And eventually I, I said, you know, they, let me do this kind of a call-in show. And I kept after them for over a year. And they finally said, okay, we'll give you an hour on Sunday night at, I don't know, 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, whatever. But they said, we're not paying you anymore. 
And that was what they said to everything. We're not paying you anymore. And I said, I don't care. Which is one reason I tell kids today, um, don't don't be about the money. If you're happy, if you're doing something that you're passionate about, everybody wants more money. The people who have all the money want more money. But if you're doing something you're passionate about, you're probably making enough. And if you're doing something that you hate, there's no amount of money that will fill that hole. And so I started doing this show, and there was nothing like it in town, and people would come on. And, and they came down to uh, the state fairgrounds where our station was, and I had guys from the Cowboys. When the Rangers moved here from Washington 1972, I had uh, Rangers players. I had people from SMU and uh, all the local schools and I don't I don't remember if we had the technology to have telephone guests at that time but I could have anybody live and uh, we took calls and people had the opportunity to call in and talk about whatever they wanted to talk about that was something new that just wasn't being done and ultimately that show went from weekly to nightly and the uh, a show that I later wound up uh, doing on KRLD, which was the biggest station, the biggest AM station in town, that show was started to compete with ours. Um, and and it was just kind of funny how all that synergistically happened. But but it all happened because I, I had a journalism degree from Missouri and I wanted to do sports and I just kept at it. But I always made sure I did my job first. So how did you not having done a show before outside of maybe the college station and being put in one of the larger markets in the country, you had to basically figure out, figure it out as you went. What were some of the challenges with that? You know, I, I, uh, ignorance can be blissful. Uh, Bill Parcells like to say about, uh, someone who has no clue that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And uh, that was certainly me, although in the case of the call-in show, I knew what I wanted it to sound like because I based it on what I'd heard in Chicago. And and the rest of it, you just kind of I, – I had no business being hired for my first job in a market this size, even what what the size was then. But the circumstances were right. The station was right. There was no great performance expectation because – the ratings were very low, and the compensation was very low, and so they really were looking for kind of warm bodies who would work hard. We actually had a pretty good staff of several news people uh, who fit that description. And um, if you just pay attention to what the market is and what the business is and um, learn by your mistakes and pay attention to your work and review your own work, after a while you can kind of figure it out. So give us the Cliff Notes version from that point, how you ended up at KRLD and as as the color commentator for the Cowboys and doing a couple other things. Uh, the radio business is um, somewhat incestuous. Everybody listens to everybody else and copies them. I left that job for about uh, 18 months. I, was, I needed a change, was unhappy in my life. I wound up doing a PR and professional soccer the guy who was the general manager of the Dallas Tornado, who I had gone out and covered, uh, even though I didn't know anything about soccer at first, um, became the general manager of the Denver Dynamos. And uh, I needed a change. He wanted. He tried to hire me to be his PR man in Dallas. and uh, So I went to Denver and did that. Uh, the team folded at the end of that year, but the – PR guy of the team in Chicago got promoted to general manager and we'd played him three times and I'd gotten to know him. So he hired me to be the PR guy in Chicago. And, and I went there while I was there, a guy who had been the program director at KRLD when I was at my first station. I mean, they heard me, everybody, everybody hears everybody. They know who works hard and they know who's got some understanding and some ability uh, and he tried to hire me at a station in San Antonio that summer, but I had just gone to Chicago and I said, I, I just don't think that that's the right thing to do for these people. I just got here. I can't leave. When that soccer season was over in 1976, that phone call had gotten me the itch, uh, to get back in. And it turned out that 
the the a job opened up at KRLD. A very talented fellow by the name of Al Whisk, who is now an attorney in Dallas, uh, had the job that I wound up getting, and uh, he got into a clash with the general manager of the station. Left. They had another guy they hired in the interim. The job. Basically, the most important part of the job was doing the talk show. There was also a stretch in the afternoon drive of uh, two sportscasts an hour. There was some SMU basketball, and there was the position on the Cowboys radio broadcasts uh, of on the road doing color with Vern Lundquist, and I was the albatross around his neck for eight years, and. And then at home, that year, Bob Lilly had just retired, so Bob was doing color at home, but I did pregame, halftime, and postgame. And the the Cowboys broadcasts were just a facet of the job at KRLD over time and various managerial changes and... um, and other kind of changes in the industry, the job evolved as most of them do to the point where uh, that's that's pretty much my job now. So many follow-ups out of that. We'll start off with you moved to Denver and Chicago doing PR, and you said you were unhappy in life looking for a change. Did you ever think about quitting and getting into something else at that point? Once, um, the team folded in Denver. Um, I was about three months out of work, um, drawing unemployment from the great state of Colorado. And I was on the verge of going to law school saying, this is just not going to work. I I applied for some other things. And just as I did when I got out of the army, it's answered ads in broadcasting magazine. Everybody gets turned down for everything they do. And, um, I was, I was really on the verge of looking into law school and my dad, of blessed memory came through town on business and we talked. He said, you're not quitting. You can't, can't quit. You're not going to quit. You're going to try it again. Keep at it. And because of his advice and insistence, I, I kept at it and I guess it worked out okay. And also when you went to Chicago after you were unemployed for three months in Denver, you're a Chicago native. I imagine it was difficult to leave Chicago when you had your foot in the door in the industry, even though there was a great opportunity in Dallas. Is that true, or how how hard was that decision? No, it wasn't that. It wasn't that hard because at that point, I kind of realized from the call that I got from from the guy who was in San Antonio, that that really resonated with me. It spoke to something that told me that was what I really wanted to do. I wasn't a very deep thinker, but I kind of knew that. And uh, and then, ironically, the job that I wound up getting, I interviewed for in the summer of 1976 and didn't get it. They hired someone else. Uh, but that being back in, and uh, in a city where I had uh, spent several years and my parents were here and um, – getting that close to I've got a real passion for what I do and I and I love the business and whatever it is you do if you got a real passion for it that there's no price tag you can put on that so leaving a job um, as the PR director of the Chicago Sting for a job doing what I wound up doing when I first came back to KRLD that wasn't hard at all because it and even if it had been in a place that I had never lived, uh, it, it spoke to my passion. So it wasn't that hard a choice. You mentioned that you started off as the color commentator, the albatross around the neck of Vern Lundquist for several years before you moved into the play-by-play seat. Obviously one of the legends in the business, one of the all-time greats. What influence do you hear today in your broadcast that came from Vern Lundquist? The, um, uh, I don't know if, I, if it's anything that I hear. I am very much aware that he was a tremendous influence on me uh, in terms of 
there are two or three things. Whether I hear them in my own work today, I'm not sure because I've been doing it for so long now. But the way, first of all, the first thing was the way I saw the field. I sat next to him and was looking at the same game. We were looking at the same game, and he was describing things that I wasn't seeing. So I realized that I had a lot to learn. And um, then I think natural pace, not being affected on the air. One of Vern's greatest, most endearing strengths is that he is who he is. And uh, most people around the country, of course, know him for his work on television. And I can tell you that doing the Cowboy games on the radio, he was the same guy. I mean, you talk more on the radio than you do on television, but he was the same guy that he has been in establishing this great legendary career that he's had, mostly especially at CBS. And so so the natural enthusiasm, um, which that wasn't the first place that I heard that, but but it definitely was an influence on me um and and uh approach um taking the job seriously but not yourself all of those things are things i don't know that i necessarily hear when i listen to my work but i know that they are parts of me that have his fingerprints all over them do you remember specifically the things that you learned that you weren't describing that he was that helped you uh, moving from color commentator to play-by-play guy. Yeah, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up with a football background, so there were things. And and when now we're talking about the middle seventies, uh, schemes were much less complicated than they were now. But I I couldn't always tell when a blitz was coming, and he was looking and seeing safeties cheat up and linebackers cheat up, and I'm still watching the ball, which as the color analyst was not my job that was his job and and so i had to learn how to do that and um little things about line play and things and uh and i take pride in those things now i try to see as many things as i can on the field Uh, but but i started that position really not knowing uh what someone in that position ought to know fortunately i think i was a, a quick study that's interesting to me just because that's the second time where you basically had to start a start a position where you had the opportunity maybe without any experience and uh, to go with the old cliche fake it till you make it is that difficult to, obviously not super difficult to you for you to do since you've done it successfully what are some of the keys to being able to do things on the fly like that well, I mean, I you know, I ha- I hadn't never done football. I mean, I done, but I'd done play by play, and uh, in the early seventies, uh, um, uh, when Hayden Fry, who had been at SMU and later was a terrific uh, success coaching Iowa, was at uh, what was then North Texas State, now the University of North Texas, uh, I did their games for a year or two. Play by play came and comes more naturally to me because it's just the act of describing. And the college game was different, but it wasn't that I had no experience doing football. I didn't have to invent it. Um, I I think one of the keys is listening back to your work. Uh, You kind of know when you sit down, you know in your own head and heart if you are really on top of what you're doing. You try to sell that you are, but you know if there are gaps, if there are things that you don't feel confident about. Now, you might be wrong. You might not feel confident about something, and you might be better at it than you think. But if you don't feel confident, then it's up to you to listen to the work and find out the areas as a listener that you would, if you were listening to that guy or girl, how would you like them to sound different than they do? So I think that's one key, and I still do that today. Um, I had to do that even more in soccer, which I wound up doing for many years. Um, I went to soccer practices of the Dallas Tornado because I was just trying to go. I went to everything. 
as a news reporter for the first station I worked at here, which was WRRAM. I went to every practice. I went to every ABA Dallas Chaparral's practice, minor league hockey practice, minor league baseball game. I went to everything. And because I went to all these soccer practices, even though I didn't know beans about the game, one day they were they were televising a game locally, an international friendly against a team from Mexico, and their their goalie was Kenny Cooper, whose son later played for the U.S. national team. He was injured, and the general manager said, we're going to do this game, and we'd like you to do the play-by-play. And I said, Joe, I don't know anything about it. He said, oh, you, you know our players, and you come to practice, and they all like you, and that you know you can do it. I said, no, you don't. You don't understand. I don't know the rules. I don't know the names of the positions. I don't know. I'm looking at it, but I don't know what I'm looking at. And he said, we'll pay you fifty bucks. And I said, what time's the game start? <laughs> and I literally went to the Dallas Public Library and checked out a stack of books. I'm not exaggerating, as big as I could carry, on the rules of soccer because I figured it was television. And if there was something that looked exciting, I could say. What a play, because Kenny Cooper, who was an Englishman, was going to be my color commentator. And he was one of the stars of the team. And if there's something exciting happened, I could say, what a play, Kenny, tell us all about it. <laughs> and that happened a couple of times. Uh, and, and then if you have any kind of sense of awareness, you pick stuff up, and, and then eventually you, you might actually even learn it. So, I mean, the fake it till you make it thing depends. You can't do it everywhere, and you can't do it all the time. But once or twice, I did that in soccer. The the football thing, doing color, didn't feel like fake it till you make it because I knew football, at least I thought I did. I just didn't know it from the standpoint of what that job required. I'd never really done color. I'd done some play-by-play, and I'd done some reporting. And I didn't really have an appreciation for doing what was then called color until I was doing it. And then I realized, oh, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to learn. And so I, one of the big keys as a young person is um, keep your mouth shut and your ears open. Ask questions and listen to the answers and apply them. You've mentioned about how you frequently listen to your work a couple times already in this conversation. What do you listen for in your broadcast now that you're still trying to get better at? One of the big things is speech patterns. We all develop speech patterns that we don't know we develop. Many of us, and I include myself, are really susceptible to catchphrases, to um, uh, tonal inflection, uh, word repetition that we hear and we say things that we don't know we're saying it could be a word could be really or fantastic or some descriptive thing and you're saying it every other sentence to the point where it's annoying but you don't know you're doing it but if you listen to it you'll find that you really don't like what you hear but now you know what to change another thing that i listen for is the extent of description Sometimes, even today, after 39 years of doing uh, the Cowboys, I will listen to a play, and I know what happened because I remember because I listened to it right after the game. I mean, I get CDs the next day and put it in my car, and I listen to it the first two or three days. And, uh, And I won't finish a play descriptively. I know what happened, and you can figure it out, but that's not acceptable. You have to, you, you're talking to a sightless person. You're talking to a guy in a duck blind. You're talking to a trucker driving down the road, talking to a guy cleaning out his garage who can't see the game. You have to be all of their senses and you can't leave gaps. Television is completely different. Play by play should shut up and let the analyst be the star. Just drive the bus. Radio play by play, you have to be everything every color, every step, as descriptive as you can possibly be. And in uh, sometimes in the enjoyment and excitement, we, we lose track of that, and we don't finish the description. All of us do it. Uh, not all of us. There are some who are 
better than me who don't do it. Uh, and I still do it more than I'd like. And I listen to it to hear those times. And frankly, there are times that you do something that's really good and you want to do that again. And I'll go back and replay just like a coach watching tape. I'll go back good or bad and listen to a play. If I hear something that I makes me say to myself, uh, really, that that's the best you can do. And, but go back and listen to it again and know exactly at what point did you go off the rails. Or if you describe a play in a way that you think, well, okay, that was pretty good. I would do that again. But what about it was good? Don't just feel good. What about it was good? Describe the formation, sense of the clock, down and distance, Where's the ball? What did the runner do? Or what did the receiver do? What did the quarterback do? Line play that you ha- are able to fit in. And if you hear that you do that well, listening back to it is positive reinforcement. And I, I think that's good at-, at helping you do it again. You've had the privilege of broadcasting the biggest sporting event in the United States, the Super Bowl, multiple times. And I'm sure that as far as the way you prepare, it's basically the same as you do for any regular season game. Any really good broadcaster feels that way. But how was the energy of the game and the experience around the game different, and how did it stand out? Um, The the first one I did, I remember more than even the game that I did that with Vern. I did the first two of the four I've done with Vern. So I was doing color common color analysis. And I remember more than the game. Even I remember the bus ride, the first one, because I got on the bus, all the rhythms are the same intentionally game week preparations. This now there are, there are trappings around a game like the Super Bowl or a big playoff game that are different. But once it's game day, I remember getting on the bus. We were in New Orleans, and they were playing the Broncos. And I and I got on the bus, and we're driving to the stadium. And I remember thinking, this feels like every other game. This is the Super Bowl. Am I not supposed to feel different? And I think when you get there, then you see that it's a little bit bigger. But that bus ride helped me remember that really describing the game is the same. The energy of a Super Bowl will lift you up and make you rally to it. But I don't know that it's any different than any playoff game. Now, I like to say that I put the same thing into doing a preseason game that I do a playoff game. And I try to do that because I think anybody who listens to any game that you do, I don't care if it's a high school game or a lacrosse or Whatever it is, anybody who listens or watches deserves your very best effort. If it's one person, that person gave you their time. You can't replicate that. They deserve the best you've got. So I prepare when I count. My statistician has been with me over 35 years. He counts counts up the number of games I do. And I said, well, put the preseason games in because I work harder on those sometimes. But there's no question that the energy is different for a playoff game. I don't know that a Super Bowl is that much different than a big playoff game. Um, but but your focus and attention and emotion and it's all concentrated and heightened and uh, and it's an exhilarating thing. It's just anybody who's ever had a chance to do one, I think, would tell you the same thing. It's it's a great experience, but in the preparation for it, you have to remember that it's the same kind of football game you've been doing for the last 20 weeks. And in the course of the doing of the game, you have to report the game just the same way you report the game every week. And players, I think, would tell you the same thing. You, know, you, you love it for the stage. You love it for the moment. You love it for the highlight. You love it for the memory. When the game starts, it's playing ball. It's just doing the same things that you do all the time, and you can't think about the fact that the stakes are bigger because then you forget to do your job. In the mid-90s, you briefly left the Cowboys for about three years to do baseball, your first passion in broadcasting with the Texas Rangers. What went into that decision? How did you enjoy that decision, and what eventually made you come back? 
Barry Switzer became the head coach, and uh, he 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 decided. Uh, it's a it's a little bit of a long story, but uh, um, he didn't like some of the things that my partner, uh, my uh, at the time Dale Hansen, uh, a notable television name in Dallas Fort Worth, um, he, he thought we were against him. And in Barry's world, it's very black and white, and we were not against him, but but he thought we were, and so he spent a lot of that year trying to get us fired. They couldn't fire Dale because all of the team's TV shows were on his station. Turned out they couldn't fire me, but they could. He could try to convince them not to uh, approve the radio station, which had the hiring uh, at the time. He could try to get the club not to approve me. And at that, in the fall of that year, a variety of events transpired that uh, the Rangers changed radio stations. Uh, Their play-by-play voice, uh, Mark Holtz, uh, now blessed memory, was uh, unable to go with them because of an illness in his family. He needed the the health plan that he was invested in, and so he started doing their television. And the guy who is now a Hall of Fame broadcaster and had been Mark's partner, Eric Nadell, a very dear friend of mine, became the play-by-play announcer. And We'd known each other since the mid-70s, and um, he knew that I loved baseball, and the replacing of Mark Holtz in this market was a seismic thing. They felt they were aided by a familiar voice. I needed a situation where the head coach of the Cowboys wasn't trying to get me fired because he thought I was against him, even though I wasn't. And so... uh, I had the opportunity to go do that, and I did that for the three years. Uh, would have uh, I, I? I fulfilled a dream. I would have continued to do it. Uh, the guy who was the president of the Rangers, uh, Tom Schieffer, later was the U.S. ambassador to Japan. I was a state legislator here. Uh, told me after the third year that he thought I was a good announcer and. Uh, he was in Tom's a native Texan. He said, every time I hear your voice, I hear a cowboy game in my head. So they wanted to make a change. And after the, that was the uh, 97 uh, baseball and football seasons. And uh, in the winter of 98, while I was working for Westwood one at the winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan, uh, Barry Switzer got fired. Uh, the Cowboys had had some bad publicity uh, the radio station who was doing the games uh, called me the program manager, a guy named Ron Chapman, who's one of the greatest radio programmers in the history of the industry, uh, called me in, in Japan. And uh, he said, you want to come back? And as it turned out, because I'd been uh, let go by the station that was doing the Rangers, which was ironically KRLD again, uh, I said, uh, yes, because I didn't have a job. I said, yes, I'd love to come back. So I came back in 98, and uh, Jerry Jones went out of his way to make me feel welcome uh, about coming back, and I've been there ever since. You mentioned that you got to cover the Olympics in Nagano, Japan, one of the more unique events that you can cover in sports, maybe the premier event that you can cover in sports just give us a couple stories from that experience being abroad and covering you know, what is the pinnacle of many different sports competitions. Sure, it's the, I mean the 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 biggest thing Logan is just that. It's just you're doing the Olympics and I w- I was hired to do the main job was a long form radio show of three hours every day from nine to noon local time in Nagano. And then when that shift was over, then whatever they had that they needed staffing, I would go out and do. And so you're, I mean, you're doing the Olympics. You're talking about everything that's going on. uh, That is the premier sporting event in the world at the time. And, And just, just the fact that you're part of that coverage is the highlight now, the individual thing that I did that was most memorable for me was moguls was a new sport. 
And uh, there was Johnny Mosley, who was the guy who won the first American gold medal in Moguls, happened to be on the run that day. And uh, I'd done this before. This is another fake it till you make it. They said, okay, you, you want to go to Moguls, 2 o'clock this afternoon? I, yeah. So I got off the air. I We had access to the CBS television briefing books. I studied up on Moguls. I uh, wrote down some of the key terms. Now I'm on radio. And I went out to Moguls, and you don't know when it's coming because the anchor is monitoring all the different sports going on at the same time. And they said, okay, let's go to Brad Shamdu and Moguls. And they came to me just as Johnny Mosley was at the at the beginning of the run. So I did the first uh, live play-by-play of Moguls skiing on uh, American radio, and Johnny Mosley won the gold medal. That's a, I love that story. Were you able to get out and experience the the culture in Nagano at all, or is it all nose to the grindstone, we're here to cover the Olympics and uh, reading up on sports the entire time? Yeah, not, not yeah. it's that, mostly. Um, I had been to Tokyo with the Cowboys a couple of times. I think I've been there three times. Uh, with the Cowboys, so I had I had uh, so, actually well, the first time I went was doing a college football game, so I'd, I'd had some exposure to the Japanese culture, and I'm glad of that because uh, it's pretty much 24/7. Um, and you, you, we lived in a uh, we all of the all of us who were on the air, we were living in a dorm in what like the Olympic Media Village, and so. There's and Nagano's a fairly small city, although there's a couple of really scenic things to see. Um, you might have an hour or two of a late afternoon, not very often. I had one day off in the month, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going, I'm going to go find some uh, authentic local food. And of course, everything's in Japanese. I don't read Japanese, and I walked into it was a Sunday. And I walked into one restaurant where there were a lot of people, a lot of locals going in. I thought this has got to be the best place for me to get authentic Japanese cuisine. And, of course, it was a Chinese restaurant. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny, too. Um, One of the things I read about you was that you were the play-by-play guy for John Madden's only radio game and that you had a unique gift that you gave him before the game yeah. started that uh, was well, worth no, a chuckle. I gave it to him after the game started. Okay. It was one of the highlights of my life. We It was the year Troy Aikman retired. We knew the team was going to be bad. Uh, we we were looking for a gimmick uh, f- to make the radio broadcasts uh, stand apart from what we thought would be a lackluster team. And what we came up with was having a different – Third, Babe Loffenberg was doing the games with me by that time, and we came up with the idea of having a different third announcer with us in the booth, uh, which is how Dan Rather wound up doing the game with us in New York. And preseason was different because Babe does uh, television in preseason. And so we we were uh, going to Oakland for the preseason opener. We needed color commentators for the preseason games. And Rich Dalrymple, the Cowboys vice president of public relations said, you know, uh, he and John are very good friends. And I, I, I know John, but he and John are very good friends. He said, Madden might do it. He does. He's, he's not working and he's got a suite at the Coliseum. Let me call him. And John thought it would be fun. And he came in wearing overalls and his cap on backwards and no socks and, uh, loafers that, you know, uh, Velcro loafers and, he just was in hog heaven because he did not have to look like anything. He didn't have to listen to a producer in his ear. And so once we got started, I, uh, uh, I got him an Etch-a-Sketch and I didn't tell him about it till after we got started doing the game. And I then gave him the Etch-a-Sketch. I said, John, I know that you, uh, are used to having a telestrator and we don't have a telestrator cause we're radio, but here you can draw anything you want on this. And uh, I think he would tell you today it's one of the most enjoyable days in broadcasting he's ever spent. He had the total freedom to do whatever he wanted. You covered essentially the two number one 
color commentators right now on both major networks, both Troy Aikman and Tony Romo, when they were athletes. So I did. I, it's a, did you see the potential for them to be successful broadcasters while they were playing? Um, well, the short answer is no. Troy would tell you, I think, because I've heard him say this, that the the truth is that uh, NFL Europe was uh, is very much in existence. We were flying back, I, I believe it was 98, because I think 2000 was his last year. So it was either 98 or 99. We were flying back from a road game, and uh, Troy was sitting next to Dale Hellestray, who was the long snapper, who was doing some games for Fox on and uh, in, in NFL Europe, and I went up to talk to Helly about how he got involved in that because I wanted to, I wanted to do it. And Troy was reading a magazine, sitting next to him, and he heard our conversation. He said, "That sounds like fun." He said, I, "I'd like to do that." He said, "I think I would do that if I could do it with you." And I said, "Great." And he said, "No, I'm serious." I said, "Yeah, I, I am too. You tell the people at Fox, they, you might have a little more pull with me." And and that's what happened. And so we went for uh, in in 2000 we went for a weekend, and he went as a lark. Took his girlfriend, Hallie was his buddy. Went to do. He and I did a game in Dusseldorf, and he did another game in a three man booth in Scotland the next day. And um, the people who ran Fox sports uh, the Saturday that we were doing the game in Dusseldorf the guy was walking through uh, uh, Goran was walking through the control room. I later heard and uh, he heard this game and he heard this, this analyst who was affable and funny. And he stopped and said to someone, I thought Aikman was doing this game. And the guy said, that is Aikman. And based on those two games, he found out, Troy, that it was something that he liked. Fox found out that he was someone they wanted. And so they hired him when he retired. And then he and I went back and did the first five weeks together the next spring in NFL Europe to get him ready. So when he, when he was playing, did anybody know? No, and including him. He didn't have a thought about it until it sounded like a fun thing to do to go to Europe for a couple of weeks and uh, and have a free trip. And then he found out that it was a way to stay uh, in touch with football, give him some freedom, and that he would enjoy uh, he would enjoy doing it. You know, in Tony's case, I don't know when he started thinking about it. We never had a conversation about it. But the nature of his injury was such that his career, and you can say the same thing a little bit about Troy, although the circumstances were somewhat different. The, he he stopped playing before he thought he was going to stop playing. And he may have given, I'd heard some rumors that he uh, had made some friends at the top echelons of the television industry and that he thought it might be something he'd like to do uh, and of course, now we're talking two or three years ago. Now every decent athlete who can put a sentence together sees that as a as a career choice. Um, but but he um, got seriously involved in it after the events of the 2016 season. And, uh, he clearly was not going to be the Cowboys quarterback anymore. Uh, Family is the number one thing for Tony, and and his young kids and his in-laws are here. And I, I, disrupting his family, whether it was by him leaving to go somewhere else for a season or moving them around, if he had a legitimate option, uh, that never made sense. And it turned out he had a legitimate. One of the things that I always find interesting about broadcasters at your level is, and especially with the Cowboys over over your time there, is the way that you handle controversy on the air. And I'm not asking for you to weigh in on any of the issues at hand, whether they're right or wrong, but how do you handle controversial subjects, for example, everything going on with Ezekiel Elliott in your broadcast? 
You know, one of the things I learned, Logan, and, and I learned it in that period when uh, – um, I, re- I really did learn it in that period when, when I wound up leaving to go do baseball for three years because I think that I, in a pre-game show on uh, on a preseason game, um, I – got a little carried away by some events that had happened between my partner, Dale Hansen, my broadcast partner and, and Barry Switzer a couple of weeks before. And I made some comments that, uh, led, uh, Switzer to, to view me as an enemy. Uh, and one of the things I learned from that, and I also learn it from Eric Nadell, hall of fame, voice of the Rangers. Have you listened to Eric? Uh, there's stuff that goes on with them, and you never know anything about it. And and the lesson that was driven home to me is that when you're doing a game, you're doing a game. If you're doing a talk show, talk about whatever you want. Doing a podcast, everything's fair game, and people, in fact, expect it. But um, I, I didn't have to worry about the whole Ezekiel Elliott business because if he was playing, he was playing. What was going on in court had nothing to do with the game on the field. If he's not playing, he's not playing. Uh, Dale and I did replacement games in, uh, what was it, 1987, when the league had the replacement players, and um, Station made the decision that we were going to carry those games. And and Dale and I talked about it, and we decided that we, we were just going to do the games. That was not the proper forum for debating the points of should there be replacement players, should they even be playing these games, who was right and wrong in the labor conflict. That wasn't the point of those three hours. They're playing a game. Your job's to do the game. That's your job. So in 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 the Elliott case, you know, I have my strong feelings about what he did or didn't do, how the league didn't didn't handle it. None of those feelings have anything to do with the game being played. And I think maybe one time I might have said something about a run that that was five yards instead of broken for longer. And I and I think I said something about that might be a case where they miss Elliott. That's the only time we even referenced him. And I probably didn't have to do that. Um, and I think it's really not that hard when you just focus on um, th- this is this is what you're doing. You're here to do the game. Now, if you're doing network television, um, I think that the guys who do network television would tell you they might address more the absence of a guy who's suspended, but they're not going to get into the pluses and minuses of the case and the reason and all of that especially if it has something to do with domestic violence. So if it's a football-related suspension, that might be different. But you, you can't avoid talking about the fact that the guy's not there. But you don't, it's, not only do you not have to get into why he's not there, it's really not what the audience wants, and it's not your job. We were in Atlanta this year um, on a day that turned out very badly for the Cowboys. Uh, the week that there, the headlines were all about a falling out between Jerry Jones and uh, uh, Arthur Blank about uh, Roger Goodell's contract. And Wes Durham, who does uh, Falcons radio, uh, is a very good friend. And we were visiting before the game, and he said, you know what, we've been, we, we don't know what to do with all of this Blank and Jerry and Goodell, and we're not quite sure how to handle it. We're not used to that here. And I said, oh, Wes, we, we do that all the time. We live with that. That's nothing. <laughs> You know, you just don't – I mean, we had stuff this year uh, the, uh, that sometimes you can't get around it for a period of time. And an example is the Monday night game they played in Arizona in, I think, week three, which was the weekend that the flag and anthem protests kind of blew up. And because it was the Monday night game, it was the last game of the week, and everyone was watching, and – there was pressure on both the Cowboys players and the Cardinals players to make a statement, pressure from the players' ranks. Uh, the president had, uh, had kind of called every player out just a couple of days before on Friday night, and the players 
really felt compelled to do something. Management on both teams knew that. Well, you know, normally I'm not really talking very much about the national anthem protests. We usually don't carry the anthem live, but we had to acknowledge that that night. It was the biggest news story. But once the game started, we moved on, and we didn't talk about it. And I think you handle it by just concentrating on doing your job and describing the game. As a play-by-play broadcaster, are you a journalist or not? Sure. Sure. But but in a different way and with a different mission than a beat writer for a website or a newspaper who's writing the game story. Um, I, I uh, have been asked many times how uh, how you handle the line of being for a team and being honest and reporting what's going on. And my answer was and is that if you are a team broadcaster, everybody knows who you're for. Vern used to say, and, and I stole it from him, we laughed about it, that our job was to do the broadcast objectively from the Cowboys' point of view. And everybody knows who listens. And I've done enough network stuff to know how you approach something right down the middle. And my audience at a Cowboy game is listening to the Cowboys. They're not listening to me. They're listening to the Cowboys. They want to know how the Cowboys are doing. And and if you're doing Ohio State, you're listening to the Buckeyes. They expect you to be for the Buckeyes. If you're doing North Dakota State, they expect you to be for North Dakota State. Now, that doesn't mean you have to lie. And it doesn't mean you can't be critical of play on the field or the court or the rink or the diamond. In fact, I think you owe it to your audience to be honest. That's why I think it's worth the time to do the work, to be knowledgeable about the game and about the players and the coaches and the plan. And my experience is that if you don't make criticism personal, they may not like what you say, but they won't hold it against you and they'll get over it. If you don't make it personal, there's a difference between, well, that was a dumb play, and that guy's dumb. Uh, that's personal. A dumb play, if a guy makes a dumb play, he knows he makes a dumb play. might be better to stay away from that word, but there's ways to say it, and I think you can. I think you can be an honest journalist. You can be accurately descriptive you can be critical if you don't make it personal and you don't beat anyone especially the audience over the head with the criticism and don't think you're the authority just report what you see and and yeah i absolutely think there is a a huge element of journalism in doing that you're famous for being one of the most prepared broadcasters in the industry and I think you're the perfect person to talk about this with since you've been at the same spot with the same team with one short break for about 30 years. How has your preparation process... 39, by the way. I wanted credit for every one of them. (laughs) So in 39 years, how has your preparation process changed from year one to this season? Well, it's mostly due to technology. Um, there There was no game film available, not that I would have known what to do with it. Uh, I'll, I, I will never forget in the late 90s, the Broncos and the Seahawks were the first teams that included VHS tapes in the packet of information that we got sent. And and I almost fell over in a swoon when I opened this package from whichever team, I think it was Denver first, and there was a tape of the game and I could watch their last game. Well, now I watch um, the tape of the last game of the team they're getting ready to play Plus, I watch the Cowboys game over again, and I try to watch coaches' tape. Uh, I think that's the big – the technology has changed what's available to us, the Internet. When I started doing this job in 1976, there really wasn't an Internet. And what the Internet – the good news about the Internet is it gives you unlimited information 24 hours a day. The bad news about the Internet is it gives you unlimited information 24 hours a day. 
you have to know where to draw the line. I think you learn not to drown your audience in a sea of statistics and how to acquire the statistics that are available to you and call them so that you use the relevant ones. Um, and I think there are things you learn about, uh, I don't want to say cutting corners because I'm not a fan of that, but how to be smart about your study and preparation time. When I started, I absolutely memorized Every player on both teams, if it was a college game, didn't matter. I learned every number. And um, that is very time-consuming, and it's not necessary. Um, my audience doesn't care who the backup offensive linemen on the other team are. They expect me to know if one of them steps in and has to play an important role, they expect me to know who that guy is then. But if I don't know the numbers of everybody who's going to play in the nickel for the other team, that's not really cheating my audience. I just have to be prepared. I have to know more about my team, and I have to know enough about the other team to not have anything surprise me. So I think that you go about the memorization differently. I used to handwrite my football spotting charts. I do them on an Excel program now on the computer. Um, technology's influenced that stuff more than anything, and, and some experience about how to study smarter. All right. And by the way, I would also say that you're very kind to say that I'm known as one of the most prepared. I dispute that hotly. I, I don't know a, a guy worth his salt or, or a woman worth her salt in this business who doesn't prepare hard I think we all work hard well we'll give you the credit anyway even though you're not going to take I'll, it i'll take it and i appreciate <laughs> it but i think but i think it's important to note that I, I you know i know almost all of them and and they all work hard and they all prepare okay final question is who do you like to listen to if you have a bye week or if you're in the off season both on a national level and maybe some local under-the-radar people from your region? It's impossible to separate people from it. Um, if, I've got a, if I've got a bye week or now we're, you know, we're into the playoffs, and uh, unfortunately for me and for Cowboy fans, we're not working right now, um, it, the, I, I'm, not, I'm not watching the game for the broadcasters. I'm watching the game for the game. I'm... I'm friends with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, so I love listening to them. Um, I love listening to Romo because I love Tony's enthusiasm. But I know all the guys who are working, and um, you know, I, I and I, my opinion, my answer would be colored by the fact that Kevin Burkhart's a guy I know fairly well, and he he's terrific. Uh, Kevin Kugler, who does Westwood One Radio so, always sounds to me like the late, great Dick Enberg. I think Kevin Kugler does a phenomenal job. And not as many people know Kevin Kugler as they do Joe Buck. But I, when I turn the radio on and Kevin's doing a big game, I love listening to him. I think he does a great job. Um, locally, regionally, uh, we're really blessed here to have some great talent. Eric Nadell, the voice of the Texas Rangers, is a, not only a dear friend, someone from whom I learn every baseball game I hear him do. He's the most adept I've ever heard at being incredibly descriptive. Little minute details that paint the picture for you and you have no idea that he's doing it. He's so artful but you walk away and you suddenly realize you can you know the color of the guy's glove, you know the color of his undershirt under his uniform jersey and how far it's sticking out from his sleeve, you know the tilt angle of his cap, you know what his socks look like, uh, in addition to the description of the game, and, and he, you never know he's doing it. And that's why he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And the Mavericks announcer, Chuck Cooperstein, is a dear friend who I hired into this market who has 
that same description's harder to do in basketball on the radio, but Chuck's got enormous energy and unbridled passion that come through. And I loved it. I love to toot their horns every chance I get. So thanks for letting me do that. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Uh, probably uh, the best way to do it would be uh, either uh, Cowboys email, uh, bsham at dallascowboys.net, or I'm on Twitter at uh, dc underscore vox, V-O-X. All right, once again, we are chatting with Brad Sham. He is the voice of the Dallas Cowboys, and Brad, it's really been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it, Logan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.